G'day, I'm Sam. Welcome to the Dance Culture Vibe podcast, where I take a look at the history and impact of dance music culture around the world. I'm a self-confessed rave nerd, and I invite you to join me on this journey. Let's get into it. When I first came to LA in the summer of 2006, one of the first things I did was to find a record store to check out the local street press and rave flyers. I miss those real world street press magazines. It's another story. Anyway, I was staying with my uncle in Van Nuys, just a short walk from Groove Riders over on Ventura. So off I went. On my way there, these two kids stopped me to ask if I was famous and not wanting to disappoint. I said yes and signed a menu for them from a nearby restaurant. They never questioned the signature and I still have no idea who they thought I was, but hopefully that menu is out there somewhere on someone's mantle. Groove Riders had a wicked shop front with big 3D purple lettering. It stood out about a foot from the building and they had this great mural of a DJ in a baseball cap spinning on some vinyl decks. That place had such a vibe. It was real. It was local, authentic and buzzing. I couldn't believe how many flyers there were. I came back with a bag full. LA's rave scene seemed to be on fire at the time. Multiple parties every weekend, outdoor venues, warehouses, historic sites, out in the desert, out in the forest, and a few massives in the big stadiums. It really was going off. Since that day at Groove Riders, I've seen many different sides to LA's rave scene, and whilst the scene and the city itself have changed so much, a few things remain constant. One name has appeared on more flyers than any other I can think of, and anyone who knows anything about this city will agree. I am, of course, talking about local LA legend and today's guest, Jacob Ophelis, or as you know him better, Theo. Theo started playing records in East LA's DJ and party crew culture, a kind of predecessor scene that for a time ran parallel to LA's rave scene. As one of LA's true rave veterans, Theo has been involved at every level as a DJ, a promoter, and a producer with releases on Bedrock, Perfecto, Suara, Luke, and System Recordings. In this episode, Theo and I talk about LA in the 90s, the city's iconic venues, the original promise of rave, the thrill of crime, and much, much more. And with that, I give you Theo. I wanted to start off talking about Los Angeles in the 90s, because growing up overseas, LA and Southern California were this kind of fantasy land. And so much of the American film and TV that was reaching Australia made it out to be this kind of just buffet of subcultures. It was Venice Beach in Baywatch. It was South Central in Tupac's lyrics. It was the Fresh Prince in Bel Air. What was it like for you growing up at that time? It's funny that you say that because I always get that perspective of, you know, when people think of Los Angeles, they tend to think of um, whether it's, you know, either the beaches and palm trees or it's um, the opposite, which is, you know, gang infested and, you know, crazy. And the truth is, it's actually a mixture of both. Um, so um, you can definitely, you know, live by the beach and have that experience, or you could live in the inner city and have that experience. So uh, for me, I was born and raised in LA, and um, I was born in um, Hollywood on the Kaiser on Sunset. And I spent a lot of time in downtown and in Hollywood when I was a kid. I went to uh, Catholic school, even though I'm not Catholic. I, it was best to you know keep me away from the um, LFI um, 
LA Unified School District. So um, I was sent to Catholic school and um, right there on Figueroa at St. Vincent's. And it was, you know, there's definitely crime. There's definitely stuff going on. Um, We then moved out to the suburbs and I grew up really in West Covina, which is about, you know, 25 miles away from downtown LA. And that's where I went to high school and started getting, started DJing. I started DJing when I was 13 and um, it's kind of like it was a neighborhood thing to do. Uh, So growing up in that time was just, it was filled with a lot of music. And that's what one of the things I, I remember most fondly is just there's music everywhere. And when I started going to raves was the um, early 90s. And um, that, of course, you know, changed everything. But yes, living and growing up in Los Angeles is a mixture of cultures. You know, you have everything from, you know, very deep Hispanic culture you have the beach culture, you have the Hollywood culture. Um, you know, I kind of always looked at things as there's there's Hollywood, which is the, the glamour, the fake, um, the kind of, you know, people are always coming at, you know, have it, having a deal or working on something. And there's people from LA, the working people who are just trying to get by and trying to, you know, create a car, carve out a, a piece of LA for themselves. So yeah, it's a bit, it's a mixture. So when you were 13, DJ mm-hmm. culture was yes. already established. Absolutely. No, was, I mean, you know, from, I grew up listening to, you know, freestyle and hip hop and all, you know, that's all DJ culture. Um, and w- the thing about it for me was there was a DJ that lived across the street from me and there was a DJ that lived around the corner from me. And then all of these people started creating these little crews. So ultimately I became a part of a crew and, um, you know, then st- or started, you know, doing little, you know, DJ battles and backyard parties and stuff like that, all before I even, you know, thought of the word rave. This was all just, you know, San Gabriel Valley in the late 80s. So that was actually something I was going to ask you about a bit later in the interview. There's a project online called Map Points, and mm-hmm. it looks as though it's part rave culture, part something else. Yes. And they talk about these party crews. So could you maybe talk a bit about the differences between what a party sure. crew is and what a, a rave might be? So it's funny because um, there actually, there were many times where they were the same. So the the party culture crew, party, party crew culture was mainly, you know, Latino, um, Hispanic. And uh, it was... You know, it was kind of, I wouldn't say gang-like because it really wasn't about that kind of aspect. It was more about getting a bunch of friends together, you know, all being, you know, you, basically it's the same dif- difference as what people call tribes now, you know. And um, back in the day, in the early 90s, there were these, um, there was a crew called Latin Underground who threw a lot of the big, big um, Latin-oriented events. If you looked at Herb Magazine back in the early 90s, um, if you look at the rave reviews, there'll be a section for East Side and a section for West Side. And so the West Sides were considered the more traditional you know, underground raves that you would go to. And then the East Side was the more Latino or party crew uh, parties. And they both had different reporters. And um, it, was, it was just interesting that there was these, this difference. But, you know, the promoters weren't you know, dumb. So what they would do is they would create a flyer for the East side crowd and then they create a flyer for the, the West side crowd. And pretty much they'd be the same party. You'd go to a different map point 
you buy your tickets, but you all end up at the same place. And uh, that happened quite a bit where you would think you were going to one party, but it was actually part of a, a larger party. Um, but yeah, I mean, mainly those types of parties were more about, you know, drinking than, than doing like, you know, ecstasy or anything like that. Um, but it was, it was, a you know, it was definitely a way for people to get into a lot, the larger rave scene. I remember when I, I DJed one time at this club called time and some guy came up to me and was like, you know, I'm, we're really proud of you. And I'm like, huh? He's like, yeah, you, you made it to the West side. And I'm like, you know, cause they, it was like this connotation that West side parties were white raves and East side parties were Latino raves. And, um, I didn't look at it th- anything like that. You know, I'm, you know, definitely, you know, Latino in heritage, but I didn't latch on to, you know, well, you know, the race stuff. Um, I was really more like just about the music and, um, yeah, I, I really didn't look at it as, as a particular, you know, you know, one was this way and one was that way, but it was definitely, you know, constructed that way. And I think for a lot of people, um, it was easier to go to East side parties if you were Latino and, you know, and if you were white, you'd go to the West side parties. But I, in my opinion, I didn't really look at it at, at that way. I just was just, I was all about the music. For, for, for the fact that there are so many different cultures in LA, I think mm-hmm. it's, it's partly because of how the city's laid out that it stays so segregated. There's this real lack oh, yeah. of public transport and infrastructure. So people generally don't, go too far out or at least in in those days they didn't go too far out of their home area did they well i mean the difference between an la and a new york is you know new york is very compact and built up and la is very widespread and built out so you know you're you're absolutely correct as far as public transportation you know the thing about you know some place like new york or even san francisco is that public transportation is awesome and it forces you to interact with your city in a different way. Los Angeles is car culture. So it's like you get into your, from your bubble of a home into your bubble of a car and go to, you know, whatever's convenient to you. But it's so segregated in certain ways. And um, that's one, one of the reasons why I lived living in San, uh, loved living in San Gabriel and specifically West Covina because when, in my high school, there wasn't a prominent race it was very mixed and um i kind of posted about that recently on facebook and a bunch of uh, people that i went to high school with kind of commented on that they felt the same um i think you know that was a very unique experience to be able to have all of these different kind of cultures in one place and for me it was all about music so I had, you know, African-American friends that were into hip hop. So I, I hung out with them sometimes. I had, you know, friends who were into goth music. I had friends who were into punk music, friends who were into dance music. So all, I was able to just be on the outside of these, you know, other bubbles or other cultures and be able to kind of peek myself in, take what I like out of that and then go and keep going around. And I'm very appreciative appreciative of, of doing that because, um, it's allowed me to have a very wide and broad love of music. So, 
So you're, you're involved in this DJ culture, these party crews. Mm-hmm. At what point did that cross over into what we would think of as rave culture? Well, I started getting into house music and techno music before I ever went to my first rave. So a defining record for me was um, Louis Love, um, French Kiss. And then there at the time in the late 80s, um, there was a sound from Chicago called uh, Hip House, which was you know, taking elements of hip hop and elements of house music and, and some um, artists in that were like Doug Lazy and Mr. C and um, or Mr. Lee. Um, Fast was, Eddie. Yeah, exactly. So I was really into that sound at the time. And that, that kind of, we started going to Melrose. So Melrose at the time in Hollywood was like the hotspot of rave culture. Uh, you had your DMC records, street sounds, and then beat nonstop open. So, it was just basically, you know, rave shop after record shop after rave shop. And it, it was basically uh, where we would go on the weekends to buy records. So in early 92, like February, we went to Street Net Sounds and DMC, me and my friends. And we were just buying, you know, records because we were into the music. Um, but we never actually went to a rave. So, but, you know, when you go to the, the record stores, there's all these rave flyers. And so we picked up a bunch and get back to my garage, um, start playing the, the, the tracks that we picked up. And we were like, you know, let's just go to a rave tonight. And that's how it happened. It was as simple as that. It was just like looking after the flyers, like, hey, this is going on tonight. Let's go check it out. And pretty much that night uh, absolutely changed my life for the, for the better. Do you remember that first party? Oh, like like it was yesterday. I think so. You know, people say, "Oh, the scenes change. The scenes change." Well, I don't think the scene changes so much as people change, right? So it's like I still believe the kid who's eighteen years old and going to their first party, whenever that's allowable again, <laughs> will be have the same experience that I did when I was eighteen and went to my first party. That that feeling uh, of awe, like you know, you're entering another world. Um, my first party that we went to Matt Point in Hollywood and we purchased our tickets and um, there was a guy at the door, a security guy who I still know to this day. And, um, and we're like looking for how to get directions and everything. He's like, well, just go East. I'm like, what does that even mean? We just go East. So we finally found the number. We call up, we have to go to a limousine that's parked outside of the pantry in downtown LA. We have to knock on the window and when they would roll down the window and give you the directions, um, to the to the actual party. Now, on the directions, is actually stated, this is not um, this is a Madonna video release party. So basically, they would try to put these parties out as you know legitimate, like you know, entertainment parties and stuff like that. And if you got caught by the cops or something, or you got pulled over, this is where you were going. Was that some you know the Madonna release party, whatever. Um, so it ended up going being at the Casa, which is on Oak in Washington, um, and right by the uh, 10 and the 110 freeways in downtown LA. And um, walked in, and yeah, I absolutely fell in love. Uh, Rondi Core and DJ Dan were playing at the at, when I walked in, and um, I looked at the stage and couldn't really see who the DJs because it was dark up there. But I saw their names in laser, like I saw you know. Rondi Corr and DJ Dan, and I thought, you know, I guess at some point every you know actor or you know wants to see their name in lights. So for me as a DJ, I was like, I want to see my name in laser. That was like what I wanted. And pretty much right after that party, 
you know, we got home at like six in the morning and I was just, I can remember I was just buzzed. I was like, this is what I want to do. This is what, you know. So what I did was, you know, because we didn't have email or, you know, websites or anything like that. Um, all we had were voicemails. And so what I did was I had a mixtape of mine and I would call the voicemails up and I would explain, you know, I'm a new DJ, for, you know, this is who I am. And I would play some of my mixtape over the phone. And I mean, it was kind of a last ditch effort to just see, just try to get into something, you know? And, uh, a couple of weeks later, I got a call back from this guy named, um, this DJ named the Candyman, and, um, which who I remembered from my first rave because he was a guy on stage throwing out candy to the crowd. So I ended up, uh, he was throwing a party in March of 92 and, you know, said I could open. And that was my, my, my gateway. That was how I entered the rave scene was leaving uh, my mixtape on voicemails, uh, someone actually calling me up and saying, hey, you want to open this party? And that's how it went. And it's been, been doing it ever since. So there was no point at which you, you felt like you had to make a decision between a conventional job and being a rave DJ. It was just always heading on that track. Well, you know, I always worked. Um, there was only four years of, of my DJing that I didn't work, that I just left off the music. And uh, I always had a plan B because I just, I knew for, even back then, you know, when I was younger, I still realized, you know, from a D, you know, DJing doesn't provide health benefits, <laughs> you know, doesn't provide, you know, a retirement plan, you know. So I've always been very pragmatic in that respect. So, the way I describe, you know, my, my uh, myself is I'm a mixture of my parents. My dad is very, you know, kind of footloose and fancy free in some respect. And my mom is very, you know, by the book and, you know, focused on career. And I feel like I always tell people that I have my head in the clouds with my feet firmly planted on the ground. So in 92, in at that time, mm-hmm. was it a scene driven by mdma what was the presence of drugs like at that time so for me personally i never did drugs in the early 90s um i was really really purely about the music but yes i I mean as far as you know what was going on back then it was definitely you know the 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 typical you know acid and and, and ecstasy or, or by far the you know rave drugs of choice um but then, you know, eventually later during, you know, you know, K was introduced and G unfortunately came on for a little bit. And, but uh, mainly, you know, it's still ecstasy and acid. And do you feel that those two drugs, I'm thinking especially ecstasy, mm-hmm. have uh, sort of come with a, a built-in set of values or vibes that other drugs either change or, or dilute in a party environment? Well, I mean, ecstasy, you know, opens you up and, um, that, that can help create a vibe. Um, you know, I, I've seen, you know, p- parties that of course, you know, particularly driven by a certain drug, you know, um, but, you know, by, by, by and large, uh, you know, raves and, and, and ecstasy kind of go hand in hand and it really comes out from the early, you know, acid house days I mean, and then summer of love in the UK where, 
you know, it was all ecstasy and the, uh, the soccer hooligans would actually end up not fighting at parties because they're all eat out. And so, um, it definitely lends to that, you know, the, the kind of what I would call the mission statement of the rave scene where it, you know, it doesn't matter what you are, who you are, what religion you are, you're just there to dance. And I think ecstasy helps you get away from the trappings of other things in your life. Um, in, instead of I'm this and I'm that, it's like, well, no, I'm, I'm one with everyone else. Um, so that experience and that openness that you know, ecstasy allows, uh, and, and it was built for that. It was, it was a drug that was used um, for depression. Um, so it was to help people get outside of themselves. And I think it's worked pretty well in the rave scene. To the extent to which the ecstasy experience informs the rave experience and the rave mm-hmm. vibe, as that's changed over the years, um, how, how has the general feeling at parties changed? Because, you know, obviously not leaning too heavily on nostalgia. I've certainly observed changes over the last 10, 20 years. And I think that a lot of that is down to drug trends. And I think that the drug trends influence the music trends. So it's not the same experience and it never will be the same experience, but maybe you could talk a bit about that. You see, I think my perspective is a little unique because I was never really into drugs. So I never got into the scene to, you know, experiment with drugs or, um, you know, for a long time I was straight edge and didn't do anything. Um, I didn't do my first pill until I was well into my thirties and it wasn't at a rave. Um, so it was, you know, with my wife and just, you know, on our one year wedding anniversary. So, um, my perspective on, on drugs and how it feels the scene may be a little bit different than, than most who, you know, definitely partied in a different way. For me, it was really about the community and about um, the, uh, just how, the, you know, I, I love what, the, <laughs> I tell people, yeah, I love what drugs does to an environment, um, even though I don't partake. Um, because it allows people to open up and it becomes this more free type of experience. Um, I have noticed that, you know, when, you know, certain drugs like K got into the scene, it, it definitely changed things. You would notice a lot of people sitting on the floor. You would notice these kind of, you know, and I remember, especially like in the late 90s, early 2000s, where I would get on the mic and tell people to get the fuck up just because I was so tired of just playing to a bunch of, you know, eat out and K'd out people that are lying on the floor. Um, you know, you're not here to, to do that. You're here to dance. Um, you want to go and get all fucked up and you know, go go to your living room, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because now you're wasting my time. <laughs> so, right. um, you know, it just um, I did see you know certain music change. Of course, you like of course it was psychedelic trance. I was playing a lot of Goa and psych trance in like the mid '90s and stuff. Um, and even though I, I've never done you know acid, I could see um, you know that music being you know, really driven by a certain type of drug. Um, you know, I think drugs and, and music, you know, can go hand in hand. And, um, well, they definitely do. I mean, you know, you know famous uh, Beatles doing acid and it changed. Uh, and it, without that, maybe you wouldn't have gotten Sgt. Peppers. So, um, yeah, I think you, it, by watching other drugs come in, it's kind of, 
takes certain things away. When you know, the parties became more about coke, then it became more about status and mm. it just it wasn't about you know the the unity that you know i guess ecstasy can bring to the table um i prefer you know you know outdoor parties mushrooms acid you know acid ecstasy they're generally good parties um but you know it, it's these indoor parties these warehouse parties you know with driven by other drugs. Yeah. I mean, everything has its place, but I've definitely have seen certain drugs, you know, really push certain types of parties into different directions. Yeah. The self-consciousness of some of the warehouse parties, um, that I guess are pretty driven by Coke. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't really connect with that. It's not really the scene I'm looking for, I guess, but your perspective is interesting. You you didn't take ecstasy until, you know, years after you'd spent a lot of time in the rave scene. Yeah. When you when you had that experience, did it feel like a lot of things clicked into place and made sense in retrospect? Yes and no. So I used to get a lot of comments about my mixes and my mixtapes especially that, um, how could you have never done drugs? This is perfect for drugs. <laughs> and um, it, it was very difficult for me to answer that because I, maybe it's just something in my own head that tells me this works together. Um, without the need of, of uh, any drugs. Um, but, you know, when I did my first pill, I was uh, in Pismo Beach celebrating my one-year anniversary listening to Radiohead. So I was listening to uh, OK Computer and um, Kid A. And, you know, years ago, even before I took my first pill, I remember being in a rave in 92, and I was with uh, Candyman. His real name is Coco. And we were hanging out at this party. And we were listening to music. And he pointed something out to me. There was this little, little acid line in the, in the, and that was kind of buried in the mix. And he's like, you hear that? I'm like, yeah. He's like, when you're on E, that's what you focus on. And that still, you know, I, that kind of changed the way I, I look at things. It's like... It may not be the main melody. It may not be the drums. It may not be the bass line. It could be just something in the peripheral that is inside the music that makes you latch onto it when you're on drugs. So I was like, well, that's really interesting. So I started looking at music in that way. It's like, what would I latch onto? That's not, you know, the basic elements of the song. And um, that's how I really started listening to music differently because of that statement. So let's, let's rewind again back to that 92 onwards era. What were some of the venues that we used? Um, the Casa was a big one. Um, that was pretty much, you know, used quite a bit. There was the, uh, Long Beach Masonic Temple. That was a really cool venue. I wish that was still around. Um, a lot of, you know, when the 92 riots happened, Things kind of moved out to the desert. So the Marengo Casino was a venue that was used quite a bit, um, like in the spring of 92. Um, I remember parties at the Santa Monica um, um, Airport. Um, that was a really great venue, kind of just a big air hangar. Um, and that was a permitted event? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. They, because they do, they do other events there, like, you know, 
auctions and you know but yeah the kool-aid and uh, destructo did one other um, party called double up mickey and i remember walking in and barry weaver was playing and um it was just he had two copies of um return of the living acid and he was just dropping these doubles and it was just so good and that, that was the thing i always went in from um not like i'm gonna go get fucked up I, I went in because i wanted to go see dj's work and barry was like one of the dj's dj's he was just like phenomenal dj and um so yeah i really i was really mainly about watching what these other djs were doing and hearing what these other guys were doing because you know i i was i was new and i wanted to you know i wanted to how could i stick out what would make me different and the only way to do that is really to understand who you know who else is out there and who you're, you're up against so that's really what i was doing was really trying to focus on um you know what these guys were up to and what music they were playing and how could i stick out did the events feel safe? Obviously, the permitted ones were a bit of a different situation. I'm sure you probably had higher security, but these underground events around downtown LA, yeah. some of them are a bit sketchy. Oh, Have yeah. you got any stories or memories about that? <laughs> well, there's this meme that goes around about talking about how weed's legal, and but that uh, illegal weed is better. And it's this guy and he's saying well, the, the, the secret element or the secret recipe is crime so there's there's this thing about it being illegal that ultimately makes things more enticing it's like wow you know I've been even though the Casa was permitted it was a large venue and it was I think like six seven stories high um, but you could only use like the first two or three stories but people would go up there and would Ultimately, it was a, it, the building was falling apart, and I remember people coming down bleeding because they, you know, got stuck on a nail, and you know, just all kinds of stuff. Um, I just you, the, the amount of you know break-ins, and I remember you know DJing a party in Pasadena at some you know office building which sh should not have had a party, um, and I, the the staging and. Um, the base was shaking the the the, uh, the roof, and Abestus was actually flying and raining down on. Uh, it. Yeah, that was pretty nasty. Um, <laughs> so yeah, terrifying. yeah, it's it it totally. But you're, you know, you're twenty something, and you're like, ah, I'm gonna live forever. So <laughs> it doesn't bother you. You don't even think about it. But and when I started getting older, like in my mid thirties, um, I started going to parties and. The first thing I started looking at, and this is this is not me in the twenties at all, but now I'm starting to look about. Okay, if Shet went down, how do I get out? Where do I go? And I'm like looking for emergency exits. I mean, this is a, this is a, it, this is me getting older and not and thinking about you know what happened with like um, that that band Great White that had that fire in Rhode Island and shit like that. You know, the last thing ghost I ghost ship up yeah, in Oakland or ghost ship, yeah. You know, I, the last thing I would want to do is be stuck in, in, in a, a fire at one of these illegal parties. So, yeah, the, my, my, my mind, even though I'm still going and I'm still attending and I'm still DJing, I'm still having a great time, my, my thinking of it has changed. It's like, now I have to be a little bit more safer. But, you know, when you're a kid, you don't care. It's just like, you know, climbing through this fence, going under this, you know, yeah, hell yeah. The rougher, the better. 
Yeah. Oh, absolutely. The more you felt like you were getting away with something, the better the party was, right? <laughs> when I first came to LA in 2006, I went to a party at the old Alexandria Hotel. I think it might have been one of the last parties they had there before they renovated the whole thing. And it was yeah. unreal. It was this <laughs> glorious old, basically abandoned hotel. There was this marble staircase, the oh, chill out room. Place. Yeah, the chill out room was in a restaurant. So everyone's sitting in the little diner booths. At that time, there were a lot of parties, a lot of promoters, and it was kind of, they were above ground, but they seemed to be like mid-sized parties. A lot of that has evaporated. Is, I mean, my thinking is maybe Insomniac got so big that it just swallowed up that tier of the market. What do you think about that? So 20, between like 2006 and 20, probably 11, there were still really you know, kind of good parties. There was parties going off at the Hudson um, over in San Bernardino, which were really you know, like strong parties. Um, but then, yes, uh, you know, things kind of went into a different direction. Um, you know, for me, I one of the main uh, venues that I got, you know, felt I was kind of a second home and was really popular. It was a place called the Masterdome, and the Masterdome was in San Bernardino and um, pretty much had, you know, Really good size raves, probably maybe a thousand, fifteen hundred every week. Um, but it was profitable. It was good times. Everyone enjoyed it, and it ended up closing down. And you know, a lot of people think, "Oh, what you know? Oh, you know that that's what keeps the scene alive. These venues aren't. You know, it's great to have a steady venue, but you know, the underground always moves on. And you know, then the Orion came up, and that was in the early two thousands. And um, I'm glad you got to experience an Alexandria party because that the, that venue is beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Um, now it's condos, unfortunately, but you know, whatever. Um, the uh, yeah, I think when in, when EDC moved to Vegas and it just became this bigger and bigger and bigger, and it, it kind of it almost sucked the air out of the room, and um, you know because. If, if you're a kid, if you're, you know, 16 years old and you're living with your parents or even, you know, you, even older, you have just a, a job and you're trying to, you know, allocate which party you're going to go to, right? You, it's hard to, if you're spending like, because EDC is easily, I mean, a couple thousand dollar weekend. And then if you're going to other festivals, because right now it's all about festivals. You're either going to Coachella or Desert Hearts or whatever. So how, as a kid or as even a young adult, how do you afford to do all these things? So unfortunately, what suffers is these weekly parties. And what happens is these weekly parties really ultimately funnel kids to these larger shows. Um, so it, it'll be interesting to see what happens post-COVID, what remains of the underground, what what it turns into after this. Um, I'm, I'm really fascinated to see. I've been you know, out of LA for uh, over a year and I moved back. Um, I was living in Hawaii last year and I moved back in March and all of a sudden COVID hits and I thought I was going to come back. We're going to start doing shows. We're going to make some stuff happen. Yeah, nothing. So um, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of this. I mean, you're already kind of seeing that because now there's these renegade parties in the desert that are doing, are actually doing pretty good numbers. You know, people are, are what trying sort to of put, numbers. Uh, you know, four or five hundred people out in the middle of nowhere. 
Yeah, yeah. and there's um, been a, a resurgence of um, illegal parties across the UK as well. I think yeah. the biggest that I've seen was 4,000. But, and you know, Carl Cox came out and, and said, this is not the way, this is not the answer. Right. I think that it's obviously an opportunity for this generation to experience some of that thrill of that crime aspect. Oh, yeah. But I, I don't know if it's the same values. Well, I mean, it's different because, you know, what were we fighting against? Well, we were just trying to find par- places to party, right? And then and enjoy this new style of music. The reason we went to raves is because you couldn't hear that music anywhere else. Now it's it's a little bit different. And now we're in a pandemic. And now it, it's, you know, we're fighting a disease that can spread. You know, Carl Scott's perspective is, is a little bit different because he, you know, I'm sure he's living comfortably even despite this. It's probably a nice break for him, I would imagine. Um, to not be on the constant tour. I'm sure he misses the hell out of, out of you know, touring, but it's also, it's a nice break. I know I'm looking at it as a, as a break from, you know, my normal activities and kind of using my time to do other things. Um, but, you know, it's, is it responsible to, you know, if, as soon as we start seeing people coming, getting sick, because we're already seeing it from, you know, gatherings, right? You know, so how long is it going to take for one of these renegade parties to actually, you know, um, be a little bit of a hotbed of, of COVID? And what does that say? And what does that look like? Um, and, you know, I'm, I, I, I get it. I want to go out. I want to go and party. Um, I was supposed to DJ at a desert party a couple of weeks ago. And uh, ultimately, the promoter and I decided, you know, maybe it's not the right time. Um, I just got asked yesterday to do a beach party. And I'm kind of debating in my head whether I should do this or not. You know, is it safe? Is it, is it makes sense? If, if I put myself out there, am, am I saying, you know, oh, it's okay to, to do this? You know, it's going to happen regardless if I'm there or not. But does that, does me going say I'm in support of this when part of me isn't? So yeah, I'm, I'm struggling with that right now. It's tough as well, because with everything being so political, any party, would I think it would automatically be turned into a political statement. Do you think that with this shift into making everything political, that the scene or, or at least the values of the scene that we know can survive? I've seen parties in Los Angeles built around preferencing different identity groups, different ticket prices for different races and sexualities. Is that the same scene? Can it survive? You know, I, I, it can survive, but it's not the same. Um, it was, you know, the more we try to separate us, you know, and I, and I get that. I get the Black Lives Matters movement, and I agree with it. But at the same point, it's like the more we separate ourselves, the more we, we, we don't become one. And that was the whole premise of the rave scene. It, it really, with the dance floor, it was what united us all, right? It's like... When I went to my first parties and I got on the floor, I didn't care who was next to me. I didn't care what color, gender, or, you know, it didn't matter. none of that mattered. We were just having a good time. And to say, to sell tickets because of, you know, this, your gender bias or what, whatever, um, a reduction in price. What is What kind of message does that, that send? Um, does that say that we're all one? Uh, not really. It says that, you know, in order to, you know, be, get a discount, you have to be a certain, you know, it just, it's silly in some respect. 
I mean, I feel we're becoming too apologetic and, and we're becoming too sensitive to things. Um, you know, and you know, I'm working at a you know, liberal college and um, I've seen some of the things um, here, you know, with the younger generation that I don't necessarily agree with, but I do understand them. Um, because I was their age, and I understand, um, you know, wanting to fight the system and want to, you know, to for e- equality. Um, I think as you get older, you realize things are, are aren't as as, as simple. Um, but yeah, the the scene will will keep, continue to move on. It just may not be the scene that I was a part of, and that's fine. I mean, I've had a good run. I was someone was asking, you know. Um, online, if, if uh, as a DJ, um, would would you mind if you know things when things came back that you weren't a part of it? And my answer was, I mean, I'm going to see what happens. If if I am a part of it, or if I'm not, I'm okay either way. I've had almost 30 years of, of DJing raves. It's a long time. Um, you know, I've definitely outlived my welcome. In the, you know, I, I read an interview when I was like 23, 24 that said, yeah, I wouldn't be, um, I don't think I'm going to be a 45-year-old DJ. And here I am, 46, and still DJ. So I, I, I didn't even listen to my own advice. <laughs> Mate, I think that's a beautiful note to end on. Theo, thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. LA is unlike anywhere else I've been to. And when people ask me what it's like to live here, I tell them that my part of town, Burbank, has three stores devoted to vintage horror and two pretend castles. This is the truth. There's an enthusiasm in the air out here. And if anywhere can remake itself in the wake of COVID-19, I believe that it will be LA and no doubt Theo will provide the soundtrack. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation, and if you want to dig a little deeper into LA's party crew history, there's an incredible project on Instagram called Map Points. You can check it out at the account. Their handle is at map underscore points with a Z at the end, or a Z for my Australian and British compatriots. Lots of incredible photos and videos from that unique chapter of LA's history. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe. If you feel so inclined, leave me a review five stars would be nice just saying and i'm on all the socials with the dance culture vibe account that's it for this week i will catch you all on the next one cheers